The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today it's my honor to welcome my guest, Dr. Kathleen Dean Moore. She is a philosopher, an award-winning nature essayist, and author or co-editor of a dozen books, including Moral Ground, Ethical Action for a Planet in Peril, and Great Tide Rising Towards Clarity and Moral Courage in a Time of Planetary Change. In her role as Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at Oregon State University, Dr. Moore taught critical thinking and environmental ethics and co-founded the Spring Creek Project for Ideas, Nature, and the Written World. Her bio there says that she likes to write from a small cabin where two creeks and a bear trail meet a tidal cove in Alaska. I was introduced to Dr. Moore through an interview by her former student, Mary DeMacher, in The Sun magazine in 2012. It was titled, If Your House is on Fire, Kathleen Dean Moore on the Moral Urgency of Climate Change. Welcome, Dr. Moore. Thanks, Melinda. To start out, I should let our listeners know that climate change has been identified by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention as one of the most critical issues facing our planet. It's connected to the way we produce our food, our agriculture, and all else. So I wonder, though, if you could talk to me a little bit about what you mean by the moral urgency of climate change. Sure. I think that uh, certainly climate change is a political issue, and it's a national security issue, and it's an economic issue, and a technological issue. But I think that fundamentally, it's a moral issue. It's wrong to wreck the world. It's not just stupid. It's wrong. And so I've been traveling around trying to call people to action to combat this climate catastrophe we face because they believe in justice, because they believe in human rights, Mm -hmm. because they believe in the um, sanctity of of this beautiful earth, all these reasons that are based in your values and and moral convictions. Well, how is that message received? I think people are relieved by it. I think that they have been trained that it's sometimes bad manners to talk about ethics and morality. People aren't sure how to do it, but in their core know that, that it's wrong to create the conditions that cause people to face, as climate change is and will increasingly, famine and disruption from their homes. They know that that it's wrong for them to profit from this profligate use of, of fuels while other people who've never had those benefits are suffering the misfortune that it's causing. So I think people know that this is a moral problem, but they haven't been invited to think about it that way or mm-hmm. to respond to it as, as moral beings. I totally agree, especially from my position or my profession that is so steeped in science. You know, everything has to be evidence-based. And yet what I've seen repeatedly in my 35-plus years as a dietitian, as a nutritionist, 
is that science doesn't seem to really move the policy dial like scientists expect it would. And I think we very much need the role of philosophers and artists such as yourself to help push these critical messages through. Can you talk a little bit about the role of philosophy in moving the policy dial? Sure. You know, politicians and many times laws say that these decisions were made on the basis of the very best science. And in fact, when you think about how the climate discourse has unfolded, scientists thought that if people only knew, if they could somehow tell people what was true about the climate, that people would act. And so they did beautiful, heroic work to get the word out, and what happened was basically nothing. So they tried even harder, if people only knew But in fact, that's a logical fallacy. We have to go all the way back to Aristotle, who taught us the logic by which decisions are made, the practical syllogism. And the first premise is, this is the way the world works. This is the way the world is. This is the way the world will be if we continue in this path. And that is scientific. It is evidence-based, often scientific research-based. But you can't get from a description of the way the world is to a conclusion about what you ought to do without the second premise, and that is the normative, the ethic, the value, the statement about what's better and worse. We might know the way the world is or will be, but until we also know what we value and the way we want the world to be, the way we hope the world will be, then we can't reach a conclusion. So the central part of that argument towards what we ought to do is a statement of values. This is good. This is what we want. This is what we hope for. This is the best that we can achieve. So if we know the way the world is and we know the way it ought to be, then we can figure out what we ought to do. Mm -hmm. So the central key point there that's missing in this whole discourse is a public conversation about what is of value, what is worthy, what is the best we can be, what Mm -hmm. is the best we can hope for. Yeah, I was pondering that, realizing that we often miss that discussion in the circles in which I run among scientists who are always looking for more data you know, more scientific or absolute scientific proof. And then I'm thinking about the way we are sold products that really harm the environment, such as pesticides or genetically engineered crops that are engineered to withstand increasingly larger amounts of herbicides. And the value statement is used against us. So, for example, we're told that the population is increasing. That's a scientific fact although we could also look at reduced rates of fertility related to our environmental damage, but that's a separate topic. So let's assume that, the yes, the population is increasing, scientific fact, and then the value statement is, well, we've got to feed these people. So on the one hand, we've got a method of feeding people through an agroecological model that works with nature, and on the other hand, we've got a more industrial process that is often subsidized by federal policies that is leading towards destruction of the water and air and our children that we hold so dear. So how do I have conversations with this two-part value statement? Right, and you're right. That is the multi-part value statement. There are many values at play. And here is where a discourse, a conversation about what we most deeply value, what we most deeply find worthy is really essential. Yes, it's the right to feed the world. Yes, it's wrong to poison people. It's wrong to plant these time bombs and seeds of destruction in our 
food systems. It's wrong to poison the soil. It's wrong to cause birth defects in children. And so when you have these these competing value statements, they're all true. Then you would go back to the first premise and you would say, then you could have a conversation about what's the best way to feed the world, mm-hmm. the best way that, that honors these competing values. So we don't want to make it too simple. And people who say, yes, we have to feed the world should be, I think, invited into a more complex conversation about how we can feed the world in ways that honor honor our deep convictions about what is right and what is just, what is best. Mm-hmm. This is a wonderful angle. I, I really appreciate that. I often find that when I'm giving presentations about food and the environment and agriculture and health, that my audience sometimes, and this is a fault of my own, clearly, but my audience is oftentimes overwhelmed. You know, they say, oh, this is so depressing. And I understand that, and it reminded me of a a comment that you made in an interview that was aired on Radio Ecoshock, in which you said, you quoted E.B. White, in which he said, we are torn between the desire to savor the world and save it. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about so many mounting problems that we face. And yes, it's exhausting, and there is a desire to save the world, but there's also this deep-seated need to savor the beauty that surrounds us. They're not disconnected, are they? No. I don't believe that they're competing. I think that the more we recognize our love for the world, our dependence on it, this great sustaining relationship, this mutual nourishing, the more we're moved to action to protect it. Often in small groups, we ask people, what do you love too much to lose? Are you willing to lose frog song? Are you willing to lose songbirds? Are you willing to lose the health of your children? What do you love too much to lose? And it's the love, then, that's the motivation for action. Because the next question, then, is how are you going to protect those things that you so deeply care about? Mm-hmm. Yes, I really appreciated a comment that you had made in an interview in which you said, obligation follows on the heels of love. Yeah, you know, that comes from Aldo Leopold, who said, sing our love for the land and our obligation to it. And I think it's no... It's no accident that obligation follows on the heels of love. Yeah, absolutely. Because you are in the Pacific Northwest part of the country, and I am producing this show in the Midwest, we wake up in the morning and we hear different sounds and we are witness to different natural worlds. And yet, I think because of our disconnection to populations who are suffering the most from climate change, it's easy for us not to see some of the climate changes. I mean, yes, we we hear news reports of violent storms. We hear news reports of fires. But you have an essay in Moral Ground by an individual who tells the story of the Inuit and what climate mm. change means to that culture. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you witness in the Pacific Northwest and specifically the Inuit population. Yes. Sheila Watt-Cloutier is a former head of the circumpolar Inuit people, and she says our way of life is based on ice. And so to destroy the ice is to destroy the material basis of our culture. It's a cultural genocide, she's saying. And she's claiming that people have a right to ice, because ice is a necessary condition 
for their exercise of their right to life. Absolutely. That makes very good sense. And when you hear that the North Pole is 34 degrees warmer this past year than its normal averages, you start to understand the magnitude of the devastation that the northern people face. Who's paying attention to that? Where are these people going to go when they lose their life ways? How are they going to recover the sense of community when they're deeply dislocated and moved from their homes? Those are problems that we really have to face. The issues that we face are often silent. Poison is silent. Disappearing animals are silent. You know, the plants that are gone and the birds that are gone, they're silent. And and the children who are not yet born, they're silent. The future is silent. And so we have to pay very, very close attention in order to hear this catastrophe that's unfolding around us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was moved by some comments that you had made in a lecture that was online in which you describe grandchildren who look up to us and say, what were you thinking? Did you not think we needed clean water to drink and clean air to breathe? One would think that that sentiment would resonate with everyone, and yet we still have individuals who either deny the science or who say, the new climate deniers, as you describe, as individuals who say, well, we're doomed, there's nothing we can do, so we might as well just keep on going the way we are. We face a, a crisis of the collapse of hope, I think. Mm. But that's a false dichotomy, too. People say, well, um, if I think that everything is going to be fine, then I don't ha- no matter what I do, then I don't have to do anything. So blind hope is just incapacitating. But blinding despair is equally incapacitating. You know, there's nothing that can be done, so I don't have to do anything. It will make no difference. So either you're very hopeful or, or you're despairing, and either way, you're off the hook. Well, that's a false dichotomy because between those two alternatives of the blinding hope and the blinding despair is this broad moral ground that we call integrity, where you don't act because you think you can achieve some sort of goal. You act in a certain way because you think it's right. So integrity is this matching between what you do and what you think is right. It's a kind of uh, moral honesty. It's kind of internal honesty, this consistency. So you don't take more than your fair share because you believe in fairness and you you live simply because you think other people have a right to live. You act lovingly towards the earth because you love it. This is not a choice between hope and despair. It's a choice of integrity where you live a life that you believe in. And I think that's what's going to have to keep us moving. That's what's going to have to get us up out of our chairs to make our lives into an expression of what we most deeply value. Uh, And that seems to me to be a good solution to the incapacity that hope and despair Mm -hmm. impose on us. Yeah, and I I see so much despair in conversations with individuals moving forward. So I appreciate that. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are speaking with Dr. Kathleen Dean Moore, philosopher and award-winning nature essayist and author or co-editor of a dozen books. I have two of them here in the studio, and I also have a document that I pulled off the web from your Spring Creek Project for Ideas, Nature, and the Written Word. And I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the Blue River Declaration, an ethic of the earth. 
it seems to me that we're at a hinge point in history where the old ways of thinking are not serving us, the old ways of thinking of ourselves as individuals, primarily in competition with one another, the old ways of thinking of ourselves as separate from in control of the earth, that they're certainly not serving us, the old way of uh, thinking that uh, if everyone acts selfishly, things will somehow or another turn out okay in the end. And we said, we need to think about an ethic that is rooted in the way the world actually is. And if we pay attention to the principles of ecology, principles of resilience, the principles of interaction and interdependence, um, what kind of an ethic can we come up with? So I brought together 24 people from very different disciplines, and we did a marathon brainstorming, 36 hours, and we produced a new, an ethic that is drawn from principles of, of ecology. And uh, we have posted that as the uh, Blue River Declaration, and people might want to take a look at that. I will absolutely provide a link on our radio show's website to promote this because I think it's a critically important conversation to have. And I wish that everyone in kindergarten learned this, and I wish that every politician had to first take a class in ecology before they could write any kinds of policies because I fear that we have a vision of our role as humans on earth, rather than feeling as if we are a part of the earth, we feel like we have this role of control. And if you look, for example, in some of the agricultural publications that some of the farmers receive free in the mail, you'll see images of control, where use this product and it's given these macho names to control the weeds and control the pests, whereas the Blue River Declaration is really calling us to see ourselves as a part of the earth and perhaps question why these pests are so bothersome. Do you know what I mean? I do. I do indeed. I call that the comic book superhero delusion. Yeah. Um, that we are the ones who are in control and that we would do so much better if we could just kind of smash down the natural forces and, and superimpose our own, our own wills. That it's such a delusion to think that, that that's going to work better than trying very hard to understand the way the world actually does work and then finding out how we can help the world nourish us and, and nurture us and provide a kind of a reciprocity from the earth so that as the earth gives us these gifts, we return gifts in ways that, that increase the capacity of the earth to feed us and help us and nurture us spiritually and, and physically. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else you want our listeners to know about the Blue River Declaration before I move on to 13 Reasons to Act? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do hope that they'll take a look at it. It's a, it's a deeply inspiring document because uh, it does point to a different way. You know, we, we have to find a better way. Yeah, Joanna Macy, the eco-philosopher, says there's three things that we have to do. The first is to stop the harm. The second is to find a better way to do things. And the third is to reimagine who we are in relation to the earth. And, of course, all these things are deeply interrelated. And you're talking, I think, about step number two, that, that there, there uh, needs to be a great exercise of imagination based on the way the world works. Mm-hmm. And a repatterning of the way we think, 
which involves our educational system, it involves our houses of worship, it involves the conversations that we have at dinner parties. And I so often feel like these important conversations that are policy or political in nature, they're difficult conversations to have and not often or too often not welcomed. Because they challenge established and honestly quite profitable patterns in the short term. Mm-hmm. But there is a great joy in letting your imagination free. There is a great joy in in working with with the land and at these parties, in these uh, dinner parties that you mentioned, and in these conversations with people, perhaps that kind of joy in a collective brainstorming could be brought to the table. Mm-hmm. I hope How could so. we do this better? Exactly. Well, I think bringing your book, Great Tide Rising, to a dinner party <laughs> would be a really nice step, a, a nice, fun thing to do on these cold winter nights. And I really liked, uh, you've got a list of reasons to save the world. And you write that it doesn't seem like an academic exercise to me. Sometimes it seems like a prayer whispered at the edge of a child's bed. At other times it feels like the lyrics to a hip-hop song with crowds dancing and drumming, or maybe it's a call and response with two voices from opposite sides of an echoing canyon. And out of those 13 reasons to act, you then move to three key ones. And I wonder if you would like to speak to any of those. Yes. I have picked out three of these reasons to save the world. The first one has to do with our obligations to our children. Whatever's left of the world after we get done finding it out is the world they're going to have to live in. And to not save them something worth living in is an utter betrayal of our promises to them. We hold our children in our arms and we say, I will give you the world. And that's that's turning out to be a lie. That we're going to give them whatever dregs are left after we've extracted what we need for our profligate lives. So if we love our children, then I can't think of anything more important for us to do than to everything we can to stop the corporate plunder of the world. That's the first one on my mind, maybe because I am a mother and a grandmother. The second one has to do with human rights. If we do truly believe that all people have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, then we have to be absolutely horrified at the prospect of the human rights violations that the climate change will and is bringing about. Massive disruption, people moving from their homes. You know, when people's crops fail, what do they do? They don't sit in one place and starve. Maybe some do. Many of them just desperately seek a different place, a different way. Um, mass movements of people all around the globe in, in some desperation as people's islands sink, as their marshes take over and are flooded by salt water. What will these people do? If 99% of Africa is no longer suitable for agriculture, as people are predicting for 2050, what are the people going to eat? And if the fresh water supplies are inundated by salt water or poisoned quite intentionally by agrochemicals, what are people going to drink? So it's a, the violations of human rights are massive and on a scale that we've never seen before. So mm-hmm. that's reason number two that I've picked out. 
And the third reason has to do with our obligations to protect this extraordinarily beautiful, surprising, finite world that we live in. The tragedy, the um, what we call the desecration of the world. You know, I don't know if people believe that God created the world or if they believe that it's the, the product of the creative urgency of the universe, but in either case... It is magnificent, it is beautiful, it is astonishing, it is great beyond human measure. And uh, I think that the word for that set of qualities is sacred. And we know that we live in a sacred world and that every time that we willfully, wantonly destroy it, that's a profanity. Mm-hmm. So those are the kinds of things I think about when I think about reasons why we have to do everything we can to stop the spoilation of the world. What was it that particularly led you to focus on climate specifically? I know you have been a nature writer for many years and a great philosopher about the beauty of the world, but something clicked and led you to focus specifically on climate. Yeah, two things clicked. I was at a conference um, in Aspen about climate change, and I heard Gus Speth, who was then the uh, dean of the Yale College of Forestry. He said, all we have to do to leave a ruined world for our children and our grandchildren is exactly what we are doing now. I went home from that meeting with that phrase in my mind to my granddaughter, who was then a small child who liked to sing herself to sleep. So I'm sitting in the dark by this child who's singing, laugh, kookaburra, laugh, kookaburra, gay your life must be. And I'm thinking, all we have to do to leave a ruined world for our children is just what we're doing. And I thought, that's it. I can't do anything now except try to save the world for this child and other children. I can't. Mm -hmm. This is the work I'm called to do. Well, I always like to read dedications of books, and in Great Tide Rising, the dedication is for Zoe, Theo, and Lem. May the world always be safe for the laughter of children. How beautiful. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. That is my hope for the world. Mm-hmm. Now, you've typically written essays, and I know that you have just finished a novel, a new approach. Yes. Yes, the novel is called Piano Tide, and it's set up in um, southeast Alaska in those great rainforests with the great lavishness of timber and fish. Um, at some point after having written these nonfiction books about the conflict of worldviews between those who are um, trying to make a killing on the land and those who are trying to make a living on the land, I was really wanting to just get down in the intertidal flat and put a couple people together in that place and see what happens when we put those people together. See the kind of, the kind of uh, story that emerges from the conflict of those two worldviews as they're expressed by the actions of people. And that doesn't sound like fun, but it really is a great deal of fun. And it culminates in this transformative and splendid act of resistance to a plan to bottle water, take water from a salmon stream, and bottle it and sell it in Southern California. Mm. Well, I'm sure like all of your work, it will provide an inspiration for all of us to do something, to focus on the one thing perhaps that speaks to us. 
Our time is up, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Kathleen Dean Moore, philosopher and award-winning nature writer. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. The website to read more of Dr. Moore's wonderful work is www.riverwalking.com, and I'll also provide a link to that with the show. Thank you so much, Dr. Moore, for being my guest. Thank you, Melinda, and thanks for your work in the world.